Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me for the next episode in our year-end toolkit series, a bundle of episodes right here at the beginning of the year for those of you who are going through your year-end financial reporting process. Even if you're not directly in year-end right now, this information will be relevant for wherever you are in your process. This week, we're focusing on accounting errors and SAB 99. You know, it's very important for companies to hit their earnings release deadlines and filing deadlines. And these are the types of things that can create a problem, right, in those situations. So the more prepared you are to make sure you have the right process, I think the better off you'll be. That's my guest, Mike Mullen, a PwC partner in our national office and first-time guest and one of my fellow power and utility partners, We think SAB 99 is a great topic for the year-end toolkit because it's important to develop a process for dealing with errors, restatements, and revisions, no matter how good you are at keeping your books. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Mike, welcome. Looking forward to catching up with one of my fellow former Power and Utilities partners. So nice to see all of us spreading out and doing different things. So thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here, Heather. Looking forward to to talking with you. All right. Well, so interesting topic we have here today. And one, you know, I think we don't always talk about in, you know, like a broad forum. And that's really thinking about as a company how you should think about the process if you find errors in your past reporting. And you know those can be a wide range of different things. I think from a shorthand point of view, we call this like a SAB 99 evaluation, and we're going to talk a little bit about why that is. But you know, from your perspective, as you think about it for year end, why do you think this is an important topic to get into? Yeah, I think it's a great topic for our you know year end toolkit and for folks to have in their toolkit. You know, audits are in progress right now for year end. So it's a time where when there'll be interaction with auditors, maybe errors being identified. And um, even though it's not a new topic, uh, this, this you know, evaluation of errors and the responsibility to do that has been around for a while. The guidance that we'll talk about, SAP 99, is from 1999. But there are a couple of new things. Um, we have a new SEC administration, very focused um, and we'll talk about some of the comments that we've heard from the SEC lately. Uh, they're focused in the area of how, how companies are dealing with errors and restatements and revisions. Um, and we also have a, f- a lot of new public companies um, that are going through this process for the first time. And I think it's good for them to develop a process because, as we all know, uh, although we like to avoid errors, think these things occur, they happen, and it's good to have a, a solid process to deal with it. All right. And Mike, I just make sure so our private company listeners don't shut off because they think we're only going to talk public companies. This is equally important for um, for private companies to think about and to put the right process in place. Absolutely. Yeah. Companies and their auditors use the same evaluation process, whether they're public or private. And importantly, too, right, we're seeing a lot of companies that are private today, but they're public tomorrow. So I think it's a good thing for private companies who are maybe thinking about accessing the public markets to begin to develop those kinds of controls and processes that will serve them well uh, when they enter the markets. All right. And then one other thing I just want to key in on that you mentioned is having a process in place. And I just had Jerry Flynn on and he was talking about having a process in place before you get to a complicated issue. And I think equally true. And that's why I wanted to reemphasize it. You do not want to be developing your error evaluation process when you find the error. Absolutely. It's great advice uh, to be preparing for these things, which can, which can feel almost like a crisis when it occurs, to be prepared to have a process that you know you can rely upon, to know how it's going to work, to coordinate with your auditor, to kind of practice this in, in, a, in a time when you don't have the situation at hand. I think is really good uh, preparation. All right. So let's jump into it then. And let's start with SAB 99, which you gave me a 
a fun fact I didn't know, which was that that was issued in 1999, something I'll probably remember. So can you just share with us what that is and how, again, some of the key things that it covers? I'd be happy to. So the first thing that SAB 99 does is address how you define or determine what's material. And why that's important is because, of course, the registrants and companies have, have a responsibility to present financial statements that are free of material misstatement. And the auditors have the same responsibility to audit to make sure they're free of material misstatement. So in order to do that, we need to determine, well, what is material? And both the FASB and the SEC have come to over, over the years is that there's not a formula to use to do that. They, they've kind of rejected a, a formula approach because there's almost an infinite amount of variability, facts and circumstances that could influence this decision. But there are some kind of definitional things out there to start with. Uh, you know, the FASB in our concept release many years ago, uh, they defined materiality as something that in light of surrounding circumstances, the magnitude of an item is such that it's probable that a judgment of a reasonable person relying on a report would have changed or been influenced by the inclusion or correction of that item. And very similarly, the Supreme Court in interpreting, you know, securities laws said very something very similar, substantial likelihood that the fact would have been viewed by the reasonable investor as having significantly altered the total mix of information. So we, we have those to latch on to, but of course, a kind of interpretation and a practice has developed over the years, which kind of refines that and uh, gets into both, you know, a, a specific quantitative approach that you need to take and also addresses what qualitative implications there could be that need to be considered before you reach the conclusion. So you need to combine a quantitative approach with a qualitative. On the quantitative, there are uh, you know benchmarks that have been developed over the years and recognized by, by the SEC. And in particular, uh, on an income statement basis, a pre-tax impact of 5%. Many companies use that as a rebuttable kind of presumption of, of, uh, of a you know, rule of thumb on materiality. Um, but very interestingly, the SAP 99 itself, the specific example addressed in it was you had a company with a 4% error. And could they just assume, could they just then say, okay, it's not, it's, it's not material because it's lower than the benchmark. And that was rejected uh, very specifically by the SEC. So what it tells you is you, you need to, you can start with a benchmark, but then you need to, you know, kind of qualitatively assess. And I, I think that makes sense, right? Because if you think about it, there can be situations where a pure, you know, quantitative calculation on pre-tax income gives you a, an answer that may not make sense in a given example. So it's good to kind of step back from that and then look at some of the qualitative aspects around it. So Mike, maybe sticking with quantitative and then let's jump into qualitative. This always interested me because when I was a young partner, I had a client that had a very quantitatively material error. And they were able to reach, you know, through this process, conclude that it was not material for a lot of different reasons. They disclosed it and, you know, but didn't revise or restate. And at that time, the SEC, I mean, within like a day, sent them a comment letter that said, uh, how did you reach this conclusion? They sent their memo. SEC, and then the SEC did agree with them. And then to your point, I've seen other situations where, you know, maybe a, a company where because it impacted EPS, and I'll know we get into that a little more, or otherwise, that, you know, they, they did use a lower threshold, or sometimes even when you have different materiality for different items. So how do you think about sort of these facts? If again, you're a controller, you start with your rule of thumb, but what are some of the other things then that you would kind of consider in, in reaching at least your starting point for evaluation? Yeah. Well, the first thing you probably do is look at, is the standard benchmark the right one to be using, right? So, um, for example, you know, if, if you have what I would say kind of a normal uh, revenue situation and, and a percentage of, of revenue of, of for income is kind of a, a normal thing, then a, a 5% benchmark of pre-tax, probably a good place to start. But you might have a situation where, you know, you could be a pretty large company and for whatever reason, economics, you know, you have a near break-even result. Um, then taking, you know, a percentage of a very small number for a very mm -hmm. large organization, you know, wouldn't make sense. 
or you could have a significant non-recurring transactions affecting your income in a given year. So again, blindly taking a percentage of what could be a very large number because you had a huge gain or a very diminished number because it's say a, a big impairment. Again, that wouldn't make a lot of sense, right? So you need to kind of, I would say common sense, um, the analysis on that. But, uh, you know, your example where you had something that was, you know, higher than a benchmark, there was probably some rationale there, uh, like I just explained, because what doesn't tend to work too well is there are things, this qualitative aspect of things, it, it tends to work more one way than the other. And what I, what I mean by that is there can be something that maybe quantitatively is right at the benchmark, but then there's some negative qualitative factors and the combination of that makes it material. Whereas if you have a very large quantitative error without some unusual circumstances, it's pretty unusual for, to be able to say, well, there's no negative qualitative. So therefore we can say that's not material. That's usually not a winning uh, argument. Yes. And actually, I think that's a good point because I don't want our listeners to have hung up and thought, oh, okay, well, <laughs> hey, I'm kind of set here. And there definitely were unusual circumstances. I, again, I think it just stood out for me because it really showed the importance of the analysis that the company had done, the understanding everyone gained of you know, what was important, why this, you know, why this should be viewed a little bit differently, et cetera. And um, also the importance of knowing upfront where your starting point was. And I think that's something, again, you know, sometimes the auditors sort of have their threshold, management has a threshold in mind too. And there's not always upfront a meeting of the minds of of where you're starting. And I think just from a best practice, that's a good place to start early in the year. Yeah. The, the coordination with the auditor um, is important because you, you, you know, both the company through their audit committee and the auditor need to come to the same conclusions on, on these matters. And so it's, as you said, it's good to have the upfront expectations. First of all, particularly in the public environment where you have controls to consider, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, it's very important that the auditor and the company are on the same page. First of all, if you have a view of materiality, which the auditor is responsible to do as well and communicate to the audit committee about what overall materiality, that's important for an auditor because they need to kind of set their scope for the audit. But it's important that that's not disconnected from the company's view of what's material because and the company needs to make sure, obviously, they set their controls at a level that's going to be effective in detecting errors that you know could be material. So that coordination and upfront setting expectations, really important. Yeah, that's a really good point on the control perspective. So Mike, you and I have both mentioned a few times these qualitative factors, and I think unfortunately I've been involved in enough of these, I could probably recite them for you. But for our listeners who are hopefully a little less familiar, what are some of the key qualitative factors you're looking at? And again, probably more with the slant is there's something that quantitatively is immaterial that would, would bump into materiality. Yeah, let me, I'll pick a few. And, and by the way, in SAV 99 itself, there is a number of, of qualitative factors uh, that, are, that are indicated. And companies should absolutely include those in each of their analyses. Um, and then there's other qualitative factors that company specific um, you know, should, be, should be used too. But a, a, a few that I would highlight, one would be very important is does, does a misstatement or error mask a change in earnings or other trends. And that's really important, right? It was, we all know um, for public companies, you know, a quarter to quarter uh, you know, earnings estimate and trends are very important to, to the company, to their investors, to shareholders. So anything that even though it's uh, maybe, again, not quantitatively significant, you know, as material, but could change that EPS trend or an earnings trend in, in an important part of the business, that that becomes much more material, right? Because that's going to be valued and considered by an investor very carefully. So, and, and this really came out of a little bit, if you remember years ago, there was a bit of an issue in corporate America of, of managing earnings. And, and I'll get into intentionality later too, because that's, a, that's, that brings up a lot of other implications. But so it's very important to see, does it affect the trend? Um, whether it's in a segment of a business or, or overall. That would be one thing I'd point to. Also, Mike, so sorry, I just want to jump in for one second there before we go on, because I think 
that one is intuitively should be so easy to understand because I think we've all seen when a company misses its targets by just a penny or a couple pennies and, you know, stock just takes a, a nosedive. And so I do think that one, it's, it's hard to get your head around how you could argue anything but that that is material. So anyway. Every time you, you step in with your, your points, you, you raise a few more things I want to cover. So perfect, that, which is great. Um, like that point you just made about um, either from your historical knowledge, what a market reaction has been to previous indicators or what you would expect the market reaction to be is something you want to consider as a qualitative analysis on its own, it's too blunt of an instrument. You can't say, well, we don't expect a big market reaction from this, so therefore it's not material, but it is something to definitely consider. So I think that's a good point that you hit on. And then what I was going to connect to this was analyst estimates, analyst expectations. And I think what's really helpful in these things is to is, is a consistency, right? So from a controller's organization, they should get with their investor relations group and say, what are the key metrics that our shareholders are following? What are the analysts pointing to as driving uh, you know, our market valuation and, and volatility? So if you have something that, again, as a result of an error, you either just meet an analyst estimate for a quarter or, or, you know, or vice versa, that's really important, right? That's qualitatively going to be significant to investors. So that should be brought into the analysis. And what you really want to see in these things is a robust objective analysis that's consistent with how the company is presenting themselves, you know, publicly and in different forums, and you want it all to kind of tie together. Unfortunately, sometimes, right, and it's 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 human nature. The the first response is to try to argue something's not material, um, and so a company, you know, might at first put together kind of a biased kind of analysis, and when you look at it, and it doesn't really kind of com- comport with what they're presenting in you know, the roadshows or in other presentations, then, you, you know, it loses some, some credibility. Definitely think that makes sense. And I think there's a balance here because sometimes you'll talk, you know, I, again, remember from my days as an audit partner that the team, the audit team or um, the controllers organization, you know, sometimes aren't even aware of what's out there. And clearly you don't want to be managing it, which you mentioned. But on the other hand, I do think, you know, if I'm the controller or CAO of an organization, it is important to understand what estimates are out there and things like that for my company. Yeah, because we've seen and, and we'll talk about, you know, part of this process is um, oftentimes uh, after after disclosures are made about errors or how they're dealt with, um, the SEC will often have questions and, and get in, whether it's in a comment letter or, or otherwise, and it, and they'll ask for the documentation. And the SEC is very good about following what a company has been putting out there in various forms and comparing and contrasting. They're very interested in a, in a press release versus a, a 10Q or a 10K, right? So connecting those dots um, is, is important. Heather, up till now, we've been concentrating on you know, the, the, the P&L, right, mm-hmm. is where a lot of people focus. But, you know, another qualitative factor is uh, how a misstatement could affect a registrant's compliance with a regulatory requirement. And here you might find it could be just a balance sheet issue that creates, you know, a, an issue. So, for instance, on a loan covenant, you might have some different ratios based on the, on the balance sheet or based on leverage. And so we could have a misstatement on the balance sheet that impacts something like that. Uh, or the cash flow statement, right? So there's some cash flow uh, covenants. Um, there's regulatory requirements. So uh, just a reminder here, because we do really tend to focus on the earnings uh, results that, uh, you know, misstatements in a balance sheet or cash flow, or even in some cases in disclosures, um, need to be evaluated under the same framework. And there are times where those things could be uh, deemed material as well. Well, and Mike, I think on that point, that's a really good example of something that you don't want to be sorting out once you have the error, that just to have, whether it's your running list or something else, that you know what those factors are. So again, if you're in the situation where you're evaluating it, there's one less thing you have to deal with at that point in time. Yeah, we, we make the same covenant issue, right, when companies have have things like impairments and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, well-run and controlled companies have have the metrics laid out so that they can respond to those things, you know, appropriately. A couple other uh, important qualitative factors, and one that gets a lot of attention is the impact that it or could have on management's compensation, 
right? So you could have an error that could be again pretty small, but maybe there's a, some kind of cliff uh, in a in a management compensation agreement or 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 a goal that's reached, you know, by a small amount, and if an error could impact that calculation, that's something that gets a lot of attention. And management compensation in general is something that investors do care about. Uh, the SEC certainly would, would, would question it. And it also gets into a whole other area of uh, when we talk later about how these things are reported in the financial statements and when there's restatements, um, that there's the whole clawback issue of, uh, regarding management compensation. So that's something that, again, to your point, we should understand the compensation agreements and make sure they're kind of integrated into this analysis. All right, Mike, any other qualitative or I'd, we probably should go back to quantitative and just talk about, and you know, there's different ways to measure the impact on a period. And I know this is another complicated, you know, item that you don't want to be starting to understand the first time you ever do one of these analyses. Yes. So I would, I think I'll cover one more on the qualitative and then we'll jump into the quantitative. Okay, perfect. So the last thing on, on, on qualitative is the idea of intentionality, which um, what we're, you know, it's a very big difference between dealing with, you know, you discover an error that was made in a previous period that, that, that you uh, up to then didn't know about versus an error that was intentionally made. Um, that's a whole different ball game. Generally, any intentional error could be viewed as material. Um, we've had instances in, in practice where very small amounts depending upon who was uh, who was the actor, um, when we had CFO or controller involvement in intentional misstatements, um, oftentimes it's that's that's automatically material. And then of course there's other implications um, that uh, from a criminal or civil standpoint that come in, come into play and uh, SEC enforcement often gets pretty involved in those situations. So um, not to mention, uh, you know, the requirement then for companies to have some in investigations done into these matters. So that in particular, um, and, and we've probably talked about that in, in, the, in the other webcast on challenging situations when there's a whistleblower or when there's investigation around an, around an appropriate or, or a potential illegal act, um, that gets into a whole nother, you know, realm. Yes. And actually you're making me think I might need to have you back so we can have a whole separate discussion of fraud and otherwise, maybe for the rest of this discussion, we can assume these are the types of errors people make because, you know, something went wrong at some point, but no one, you know, acted to your point deliberately. Exactly. Okay. So, so then we get back to the quantitative and, and this requires, you said, if you have one error, it's usually pretty pretty easy to deal with. Sometimes there's multiple errors, and then there's there's various calculations that need to be made. But what you, what what the company needs to do is to lay out um, the impact um, in each of the periods that are presented. So when on a, on, a, on a public company, you're looking at three years of income statements, um, two years of of balance sheet, and you're looking at quarterly statements for for that are presented over the last two years. So you need to kind of attribute. Uh, go back and basically recast uh, based upon if these errors were had appropriately been recorded, how does it impact each of the per periods presented, you know, on, on the appropriate metrics um, throughout the, the various statements? And then, uh, you know, and then do your calculations on the percentage impacts on each of those metrics um, for each of the periods presented. So, Mike, I think that's helpful. A couple of questions for you. First, uh, specific to quantitative. So, first one is, you know, when we talk about creating these schedules, we're not just accumulating items that are above our quantitative threshold. And I think that's an important point to talk about. So, I know we talk about like a de minimis threshold. Can you just give a little more light on in terms of how a company should think about what to even be accumulating to evaluate when they're doing um, this analysis? A company should have a process to identify all errors over what we might call a de minimis amount. Um, and again, good good for the auditor and the, and the client to be, and the company to be aligned on what the appropriate de minimis measures are. But things that are truly inconsequential, you know, below a certain dollar level for, for a company, you probably don't need to worry about. But there's a whole host of things that could be not material, but over a de minimis amount that you'd want to collect um, and incorporate into the analysis. So 
Um, that's not uncommon to see a number of those, you know, smaller dollar items, but everything needs to be aggregated. The way SAV99 works is you have to look at an error individually and then in the aggregate. So it's important to have a process to identify uh, all errors and, um, and to include that in, in this schedule and in this analysis. All right. And then another point you mentioned that I just want to touch on is we talked about a little bit about quarter versus annual materiality, and maybe you're planning to get more into this, but I, I know sometimes this is where there's also, I'll call them sticky questions, because maybe something is material to an individual quarter, but then it's not material to the year. So how do you think about materiality in the context of a quarter? Right. So when you're analyzing an error in the current year, you need to look at both the impact on the quarter and on, on the year. There's a provision that says, if you have an error from a previous period and it's not gonna be material to the year, in the current year, you're able to record that in a quarter with the appropriate disclosure. So it might be that it's material to the quarter, um, but it, you, you're, you're able to book it in that quarter with the right disclosure uh, under the provisions. However, if you have find an error and it's material to a quarter that's already been reported and now needs to be adjusted, you could be in a situation where you might have a restatement of a 10Q, right? Not the full 10K, because maybe you're in the third quarter and you find something that belonged in the first quarter of that year that's material to that first quarter. Then you need to uh, revise that quarter. Working with the company, with SEC counsel generally, you can determine whether a 10QA is required to be filed or not. Nonetheless, you're going to, you know, sometimes you can revise that quarter next time filed. Um, that's a determination dependent upon the significance of the item and whether there's going to be other uh, issuances of the financial statements during the year. So uh, it's a good point to kind of break up the impact on the quarter versus the year and evaluate both, you know, accordingly. All right. And then, Mike, you've mentioned disclosures a few times, but before we come to that, I think there, we should just get into the different things, sort of different outcomes you can have. So now I've done my quantitative analysis, done my qualitative analysis. And I think important reminder is that the company needs to go through and, and write a memo and document this. This is not just something that you can back of the envelope or, you know, um, just just talk about, but to really take pen to paper, and what are my potential outcomes? Okay, so let's walk through this. So the first question you're going to ask after you've done the quantitative and qualitative analysis and you come to the conclusion is, are any prior periods materially misstated? If the answer to that is yes, then we're going to get into having to do a restatement, which if we talk about a 10K, um, so we're in a current year, we realize there's the, the prior year was materially misstated, what we're going to have, what the company's going to have to do is file an 8K, 4028K to, to basically pull reliance on the previous, previously filed financial statements. And then they're going to need to restate that in it. And typically in a 10KA, if we're talking about an annual period, and a 10KA basically amends that previous 10K filing to correct um, the misstatement. Along with that, the auditor's opinion will be updated. For the, for the correction. And something we'll talk about a little bit later is the other implication of, the, of that is presume that you'd have a material weakness um, that would need to be uh, reported as well. Uh, so that's if you have a, a, a previous period that's materially misstated. If your conclusion was there are no prior periods that are materially misstated, then you need to look at the impact of correcting the error in the current year. And if, if you were to correct the error in the current period, but that would materially mistake the current year, then that's not an available option. And in that case, what you need to do is revise previous financial statements, push back that error. You don't need to do the 8K and pull reliance because those previous statements were not materially misstated. Um, and that's a key distinction. And so what you, what you do in those cases is the next time you file those statements, you'll have them corrected. You'll have disclosure in your current statements about that revision, but that, that's what distinguishes that from a restatement. If you can handle the out-of-period adjustment in the current year, so you have a prior period that's misstated, but it's not material, 
and you can book that correcting entry in the current year without materially misstating the current year, then you're able to do that. And that's called an out-of-period adjustment with appropriate disclosure in the current year. And that's an appropriate way. And therefore, you don't have to do anything with the prior financial statements, right? You're not going to change them. We're not going to revise them. We're just going to correct the error in the current year with the appropriate disclosure and then, you know, move forward. So that that's th- those are really the three different uh, uh, options, I would say, or I don't know if they're really options. You're kind of a decision <laughs> tree. There's some optionality in whether a company, dis- what sometimes companies um, decide to revise and they have that ability to, instead of recording an out of period in the current year, maybe they don't, they don't want to do that. They say, look, we made an error. We don't think it's material, but we think we ought to go ahead and fix it anyway. And that's appropriate. And so there, there's, there's plenty of those situations as well. All right. This is helpful decision trees. So a couple questions for you. You mentioned the scenario where it's sort of earlier in the year and you find an error so you can, and that's material to a prior period. So you determine you need to pull reliance. So two questions. First one is, can you just touch on some of the implications when that happens? Cause I know it can impact issuing debt and other things that companies again, may not have top of mind in that moment. Sure. And this is why a good timely process and interaction with the auditor is really important. Um, whenever during the course of a year an error is detected, you need to deal with it uh, in, in an expedited fashion because you have to answer that question for yourselves and for the auditor is, are my prior financial statements that are on file and presumably being used by investors on a daily basis, are they still reliable? That's a very important question with a lot of implications. So you need to do an analysis in a timely fashion and uh, if you reach a conclusion that they're, they are materially stated, you need to get an AK on file within four days and you need to get that corrected. In the meantime, those financial statements and the auditor's opinion on those are not available to be used. And so you bring up a, 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 an excellent point. You, know, you might have a, a debt financing that you want to do, public debt financing or an, or an equity offering. Uh, in order to do that, there need to be current financial statements that are relied, or can be relied upon. The auditor needs to be in a position to be able to consent to the use of those financial statements. So these things need to be dealt with in a timely fashion so that you're not raising money on statements that have known errors in them. And Mike, you may have touched on this a little, but I know often these errors arise during year end. So it's not some random time during the year, but you know, you're in the process of preparing those year end statements and you find something. So how do you see companies dealing with, you know, with that? Let's say it's the timing we're releasing this podcast. They found one this week, you know, it's sort of end of January, beginning of February. What do you do? So in those cases, if, if the, if it's timely enough, you might be able to accomplish you know, like in a situation where you might need a, a 10QA uh, or a 10KA, you might be able to accomplish that in the same time that you're doing the current year, you know, 10K. Um, as, as we know, the, the, the 8K rules uh, do uh, depend upon whether you're in a financial reporting period that you're active or in between. Uh, and again, the key thing, though, is in, usually with a, with a restatement that might take a little bit of time to evaluate and things, you, you'd want to get you might not have the ability to wait till you're actually going to file if you have a restatement situation. So you need probably need to get that 8K filed, deal with material weakness. If if we're talking about a revision, um, where you know you deal with something next time filed, you you probably and you're in the reporting period, you can probably you know take care of that when you file the 10K, um, you know, with the right disclosure. So it, it does kind of depend upon upon timing. These things do require audit committee uh, involvement. And um, when a company fully reaches a conclusion on something like a SAB 99 through, through, you know, audit committee, then, you know, the clock starts ticking. And Mike, you mentioned disclosure and we've, this has come up a few times. I know sometimes you get through the revision restatement, say you conclude neither of those, but now you have this disclosure question. And I think there's sometimes a sort of sense of, I didn't have to revise. I don't need to restate. I, I don't want to disclose this item. And I think that can be tough to, to work through and to, for a company to think about. So what are some of the things you think about as you're considering, you know, whether or not something should be disclosed? Yeah, you, you raise a good point. And it gets 
a little circular sometimes, right? A company said, well, it's not material, so why do I need to disclose it? Well, it depends upon what we're talking about. If we're talking about the out of period, um, you know, specifically that could be material to a current, to a quarter in the current year, even though it wasn't material for the prior years, that would require disclosure. So that kind of straightforward. There are other cases, like you say, where it was, you know, it was more than de minimis, but it wasn't material. And, you know, do I need to disclose that? And, and there, what I think about is what are the types of things and the level of things that that company tends to disclose anyway in their MDNA and their footnotes? Is this uh, at a dollar amount or an impact level that, you know, they might point to um, anyway, again, in, in a trend in MDNA, does a, does a, if we're talking like, say, a $5 million error, does the company typically talk about $5 million things uh, that aren't errors? Then, you know, you might think about, you might try to put it in that kind of uh, filter. Um, and the other thing is what we always say to companies, you know, there's never anything wrong with transparency, right? You don't want to get into minutiae and nobody, you know, we're not talking about de minimis items, but if there's some significance to it, um, I'd rather be on the side of angels and suggest transparency because the other thing is now, again, if you're a company that has very, very rarely has an error and this thing is truly not that material and you don't expect it to come up again, a company can make their conclusion on that. The auditor might give a point of view, but you could reasonably get to something and say, we don't have to disclose every single thing. But on the other hand, you know, if there's a possibility that there could be other things that then come up further down the line, right? So you have an out of period. It's not significant now, but now next quarter you have another error. And when mm-hmm. you now you already have something, it, yeah, right. You have yeah. a problem, and then it gets a little uncomfortable to say, "Well, when I've combined this w- with an item that I previously had not disclosed, and now I have a problem," um, you might get some real questioning in the, in those cases. So I think uh, we always sit and say, "Let's have a have a good discussion, put it in the framework of you know may not be material, but might be worthwhile for discussion or disclosure, and try to have a reasonable you know." Uh, presentation and and discussion with our clients on those kinds of things. Yes, that is very good advice. And I think looking ahead is helpful because you don't want to be sort of looking at your shoes in a a future period. So, uh, so Mike, you've mentioned again, a few times internal control implications, and maybe we shouldn't have saved this, um, you know, to the end, because it obviously is a very critical part of this discussion. But how do we think about internal control? It's, it's critically important. And, and now we go back in time, right? We talked about our 1999, you know, when the SAB was, that predated SOX, right? So we didn't even, I mean, of course you had, uh, there was control things to worry about, but there wasn't the control reporting environment. Um, so it's, it's really changed the game. Um, and what companies tend to do pretty well is focus on the number and the error. And sometimes just in the timeliness, they, they, they're not as focused on the control evaluation so um, it's become more and more important to really concentrate on that. And basically, I mean, anytime you have an error, you have a control deficiency presumed, right? And then, then you have an evaluation you need to do about how significant that deficiency is, whether it's a significant deficiency or material control weakness. Um, if we start with, at the top, restatements, basically is, the restatement is a presumed material weakness. There probably is an example somewhere where that wasn't the case, but I, I can't come up with it off the top of my head. So, um, and this often gets uh, to be the painful piece of things, right? But it really needs to be evaluated with the error and because there's the reporting implication for the company and it affects the auditor's opinion as well. The other thing is, and we know this from control evaluations, right? Is the control evaluation also has to take in the could factor. So we have an error. It's not, we determine it's not material, but that, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't have been material, right? So what that requires is a company get into what was the root cause of this error and then delve into evaluating the control and the significance of what the error could have been. And so you might very well have something that's not material. You don't need to restate your financial statements. But yes, you do have a material control weakness. And so yeah, I think this is a big pain point because that whole idea of what could have happened, it's so easy to say, but it didn't. And so I think this is where, it's, it's particularly with all the emotion and otherwise that's involved, this is, is probably one of the most difficult parts of even beyond a restatement, I think. Absolutely. And I would say that the, the, the phrase I come up with is, you know, both the SAB 99 numerical and quantitative qualitative analysis is a subjective exercise. 
as is determination and evaluation of material control weakness, but you really need to do them in an objective manner, right? So um, it, you're absolutely right. It, you, you know, when you look at an error and it's 10% on a, on a 5% benchmark, usually it's not for a lot of arguments around materiality. But when you're under the benchmark, you determine it's not material, it's a, it's a much diff- more difficult conversation, but you just need to, you know, go through it in an objective manner. Um, again, what I say in these cases, both in the SAB 99 and the controls evaluation is there are a lot of assertions that are made by, by, by companies. That's fine. We need to support those assertions, right? As long as you're, you're telling a story that can be supported by the evidence and the facts and good judgment, um, then, you know, I think everybody can stand behind that. Uh, it's kind of a double whammy, right? When you have, when you have these situations and everybody gets through the, the exercise of evaluating the error, but then, uh, the controls is, uh, is something that needs to go along with it. Yeah. All right. So Mike, another point you've touched on, but I want to jump a little deeper into is who is involved. So we've talked about the controller, we've talked about the auditor, but who are the other parties and what point in the process do you think about bringing them in? It's really important you have the appropriate folks at the table. Um, and again, the more significant or more challenging or more judgmental one of these situations is, the more important that all these parties are involved. So obviously you have your your controllers department, CFO, however your company's organized. You have the auditor that needs to be part of this process. And again, when you think about how these things originate, sometimes the company themselves, you know, finds an error and they need to be disclo- disclosing that timely with their auditor and discussing it. Sometimes it's the auditor, right, who finds error during the course of an audit or a quarterly review. So they're involved that way. And then importantly, the audit committee, you know, needs to be involved from a good corporate governance standpoint, from f- an auditor fulfilling their responsibilities to communicate to the audit committee. These types of things need to be communicated and evaluated. And, and then I would say uh, at CC Council, a lot of companies can be very helpful. And again, in situations where there's uh, more judgment involved or in those situations, like we said, there's potential, you know, intentionality or, or things that could have other implications. I think very important for SEC counsel to be involved to give, make sure the company's getting the right legal advice and counsel and that everybody is, is on board. Um, typically, um, what can happen is, um, these things will be addressed through SEC comment letters, right? So a company deals with a revision or a restatement or an out of period. And let's pick an out of period. Uh, the SEC reviews that document and says, I see here you disclose an out of period and you said it wasn't material. Um, send us your documentation uh, to support that. That's why we spend so much time talking about the importance of the quality of this process and the quality of the documentation and the, and the importance of who's involved. Because now you're on record the SEC has asked for support. And what you really need to do in those situations is to have a well-reasoned, well-judgment, well-documented, contemporaneously documented right, document that you can immediately ship to the SEC and support the position you took. And what we have found is when those things were contemporaneously done with the right process, with the right people involved, um, and with, with good rationale, um, that's usually, uh, it goes very well with the SEC where obviously it doesn't go so well is when, when there's, there's, there's not good contemporaneous documentation or there's a memo. And, and, and this is really damaging. We've seen cases where the materiality argument probably could have been supported, but it was so poorly documented, um, that it leads to further questions. And, and sometimes those things don't win the day. Right. So. Um, really important for for all those parties to be involved. I mean, the the whole really the whole C suite on 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 significant items. I mean, the, C, the CEO is signing a representation letter. Um, they, they need to be made aware by their by their controller and CFO of any you know of of these errors that are and how they were evaluated and what conclusions were reached. So, uh, I think it's really important to have all those um, you know participating. All right. Well, definitely a good reminder there. And I maybe the last point on that is that I think sometimes the controller can view all those other parties as almost like an ally in just resolving this. And again, it's taking some of the emotion out. And I would recommend anyone who hasn't that they go listen to the discussion I have with Jerry Flink because he has some, some good advice in this area. All right. couple last questions. So first one, you've mentioned a few times the SEC and, you know, some of their thinking, anything recent that you would highlight for the audience? 
Absolutely. And it's really interesting because we've heard from members from both OCA, Corp Fin, and enforcement. So back just as recently in December, Paul Munter, the acting chief accountant, he discussed errors in financial statements, and he observed this pretty pronounced swing from the amount of restatements there have been historically to the amount of revisions. And that's the big R versus little r we talked about, right? And he noted that there was a big rise in the little r revisions as a percentage of total restatements. And so he may be implicitly in there questioning, you know, the materiality judgments being made. Are, are, are companies, you know, uh, putting more things in revisions that should have been a restatement, that should have had an 8K filed, that should have had a material weakness? And so he's just reasserting, uh, he highlighted the same guidance we have that we just talked about, SAB 99. He talked about really important to, to think about the qualitative factors and, and the internal controls evaluation. And he stressed the objectivity needed. So I think he could have done this session with you and, and had shared the same, same points that I raised. Um, and then we had in Corp Finn, the chief accountant, Lindsay McCord, very similar. She kind of echoed Paul's comments, right? And she talked about specific cases where a registrant came to them with a, with a proposed revision that they rejected because when they, uh, you know, uh, uh, evaluated it, they thought that they, that that was material for investors, right? So, and we've seen those situations. So it just, you know, again, I would not say that the, the field goal posts are moving, um, but we need to be cognizant and, and registrants need to be cognizant of putting together well-founded, well-reasoned judgments because we can see there are examples where they've been overturned and there's definitely a focus on this. So I would, I would uh, remind registrants of that. And she also talked about the internal control implications in these cases. And then lastly, and I think very importantly, um, Matt Jakes from the enforcement division had some comments and you say, wow, enforcement division, why, why interested? Well, they might be interested in, you know, the, again, did, did, did companies and our auditors, you know, uh, have the right process? Um, uh, is there something more that needs to be looked into here? Again, intentionality, I think that will always attract enforcement attention. Um, but, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, beyond uh, what you might say, maybe it's not even intentional. I mean, obviously, companies have responsibilities to have adequate internal controls to do appropriate financial reporting. So anytime that there's a, it could be a restatement uh, or a revision, uh, it may very well attract, uh, you know, a comment or an inquiry from enforcement. And obviously, that's something that's to be taken, you know, very seriously. Definitely. So, Mike, clearly from this conversation, so much for companies to think about. And I know we've actually only skimmed the surface in some ways. But what would be sort of as a final question, your number one piece of advice? You know, I'm a controller. I'm listening. What what can I do to make the process go the best that it can. A couple of things come to mind, and Heather, you hit this right up front in our discussion. Is you know the importance of of being prepared for this. So, um, having a process that's kind of part of your normal financial reporting process, and if you don't have to use it in a given period because you have no errors, that's great. But having a built-in process where you know who's going to do what, have a framework that's developed, and you know basically you can have that template right, of what are the important qualitative factors for you, have a system where you you have a reliable system to make sure you're, you're collecting all errors, look at root cause of any errors that you do have, and, you know, make the, make the control corrections or, or enhancements that you might want to make, so you have less of these in the future, and coordinate closely with your auditor in terms of materiality judgments and in process. Um, so I say if you do all that kind of preparatory work, um, then I put, I think you know, companies put themselves in, in the best position to be able to then handle these things um, when they do come up in that, you know, in that tight, tight window in, in financial reporting. And so it's important. I know, you know, it's very important for companies to hit their um, you know, earnings release deadlines and filing deadlines. And these are the types of things that can, that can create a problem, right, in those situations. So the more prepared you are um, to, to make sure you have the right process, um, I think the better off you'll be. All right. Excellent advice. So, Mike, we're now to the final segment of our podcast, sort of my favorite part, where I'm going to try to stump you. First one, which SEC chairman gave a speech that preceded the issuance of SAB 99 entitled The Numbers Game, which laid out the case that companies were misusing the concept of materiality in order to manage earnings? 
Oh boy. Um, well, I'll be impressed if you. Yeah, can I, guess think this, so. I think you're gonna you're gonna stump me on that one. I'm not even gonna. Not even going to guess. Probably, probably for the best. And to be fair, you already told us the year, which I often, you know, sometimes I give that hint, but you know the year. Fact check. Well, you already know I stumped Mike on this one. Arthur Lovett is the correct answer. The speech was given on September 28th, 1998 at the NYU Center for Law and Business. SAV 99 was issued just under a year later on August 13th, 1999. So in the same speech, the SEC chairman, he called out five types of accounting hocus pocus that companies were employing to obscure actual financial volatility of which materiality was just one. Any guesses of the remaining four areas of accounting hocus pocus? The only thing that jumps to my mind is the cookie jar reserves, but I, I, I think companies kind of kind of misuse those things. So that that's that would be yep, my best. That's a good one. The definitely a good one. Fact check. Good guess, Mike, with the cookie jar reserves. That's one of the hocus pocus areas I was looking for. The other three are big bath charges creative acquisition accounting sounds so much better than it really is and revenue recognition. I'm almost embarrassed to ask this question, but I hope you, I will give the answer and I hope you laugh um, if you can't guess it. So this is a bonus. If accounting error assessments were a car, what type of car would they be? Be prepared to groan when I give the answer. Oh, uh, a Model T. I don't know. <laughs> so the Saab 99. Oh, gosh. That's awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, this is a hatchback car manufactured by Saab from 1968 to 1984. And my team is actually apologizing to give a dab joke, but the one who put this together is dad. So um, <laughs> I actually, had a sob at one time. I, I have actually one. had a sob too. And I do actually think this is a very funny joke. So I'm impressed that he thought of this, the counting humor. Mike, appreciate all the insight. And thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Heather. It's been a pleasure. That's our show for today. Join me this Thursday for our second special current events episode focusing on the current inflationary environment. Then next week, we'll pick back up on Tuesday, all about LIBOR. And then on Thursday, we're back to our Finance 2025 series, looking at how to improve the close process, how to do it faster, achieve efficiencies, and of course, not sacrifice quality. Sound too good to be true? Tune in to find out. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.